Welcome to the Mountain Bailey Photography Podcast. It's May 18, 2015, and this is episode 472. Ten ways to do this and five ways to do that are popular types of posts and can quite often be a little bit corny, so I don't really do these that often, but a number of things have been on my mind recently, so I thought I'd pull these various topics together into a list of 10 ways to improve your photography. I'm going to talk about this mostly from a nature or landscape photographer's perspective, but much of what I have to say today is relevant for all photographers. There's all sorts of stuff that you can do to improve your photography in various areas, of course, so Think of this as my short list of advice. Here we go. So number one, getting closer. When we approach a scene, it's all too easy to be overwhelmed by the entire scene and reach straight for our wide angle lens. Great, if the entire scene is worth capturing, do that. But bear in mind that quite often what we are reacting to is not the scene as a whole, but a number of smaller, beautiful elements within the scene. Our brains are amazing machines that instantly stitch together various elements that make us excited about a location, but when we pull all of these elements into a wide-angle photograph, each of them individually gets smaller and can become relatively insignificant when viewed by others in a single photograph. If you're able to print that image out at re really large and have people view the details, it may give the viewer the same sense of wonder that you had in the field. So as I say, if it's a beautiful scene, by all means, make your wide angle shot of it, but then reach for a longer lens and pick out all of the individual elements that you are truly attracted to. One of the things that I find works for me is simply taking a moment before I select a lens to take the entire scene in. There are often parts of the scene that are making you say wow. Just ask yourself where these parts of the scene are and if they would be more powerful brought together into one photograph or broken out simply depicting each interesting element or a fewer elements in multiple photographs. Okay, number two, simple is best. When I'm teaching photography in the field, I often find myself saying, if an element doesn't add something to the image, then it detracts from it. You are responsible for everything included in the frame. Before you release the shutter, scan the frame and ensure that you are only including elements that play a part in your scene, adding to the overall story that you want to tell. If any element is not adding to the scene, leaving it in the frame may actually detract from the overall beauty or effectiveness of the final image. Your options, of course, are, as in point one, to getting closer, either by moving closer or selecting a longer lens, zooming in to narrow your frame, enabling you to exclude unwanted elements. Sometimes, of course, you'll be faced with a decision. You may have an unwanted element that you don't want in the frame, but a second element nearby that belongs in your photograph. When this is the case, you have to consider if moving your own position to the left or right or getting higher or lower will enable you to include one element without the other. 
If you absolutely cannot frame the scene to eliminate the unwanted element, ask yourself if you are okay with removing it later on the computer, and how easy will that be to do? I love snow scenes such as the one that I'm showing you here now, because they enable us to reduce a scene down to the bare minimum. With an overcast sky too, we're left with literally only essential elements to make up the photograph, the tree, the fence posts, and the subtle line of the top of the hill. Nothing else. This image was shot on my Hokkaido Landscape Photography Adventure Tour. If you're not already on the blog, go over to mbp.ac slash 472 and there'll be links to some things like the tour, but also the images are there. So I, I won't be calling each one of these images out, but I've tried to illustrate each one of these points as well. So do go over to the blog and take a look. Another thing that you can do to minimalize the distracting objects in a scene as well is to use a slower shutter speed and that enables you to de-emphasize the faster moving objects. For example, if you are photographing a street with people walking along it but you only want the architecture, then consider putting on a neutral density filter and slowing your shutter speed right down. With a multi-second or even a multi-minute exposure, Anyone that is not standing still will simply disappear, but the static buildings will, of course, stay right there. I've also embedded a link to my All About Neutral Density filters into the blog post as well, if you're interested in learning more about neutral density. So point number three, background is king. Many people, including myself, love to use a large aperture like f2.8 to get a shallow depth of field and blur the background and maybe also any foreground objects in the scene to give our images a beautiful ethereal look. For many people though, too little attention is paid to what is happening in that out of focus bucket. Without paying attention to where the out of focus patches of colour or light in the background fall, you can ruin your image or at the very least miss a chance to make a nice photo exceptional. As you line up your shot, look not only at your main subject, but see how the out-of-focus background is interacting with them. If you have a natural ball of light, for example, consider placing that behind your subject, be it a flower or a person, or the sea eagle at sunrise that we see in this photograph. If that doesn't work for you, take it totally away from them. Having a large ball of light or a patch of colour behind, half behind your subject can work, but quite often it just looks like sloppy framing and generally best avoided. Number four, use live view when possible. To help with some of the compositional advice that we just covered, whenever possible, use live view on your camera. Live view doesn't work well for action shots, which are more easily captured while looking through the viewfinder, but for slower paced shooting like still lifes or landscapes, it can be very helpful. The reason it helps is because live view condenses the otherwise three-dimensional world down into two dimensions, emulating our final photographic image. Electronic viewfinders on many mirrorless cameras do the same thing. When you look through a physical viewfinder on an SLR camera or a rangefinder camera, 
we are looking at a three-dimensional world. Although the frame of the viewfinder helps us to a degree, our brain still moves between the various layers of the scene subconsciously, separating them and making it more difficult for us to identify elements that will look out of place in a two-dimensional photograph. In live view, pay attention to the flattened layers of your image and move around to stop elements from stacking up in an awkward way or to purposefully align background elements to enhance your main subject, as we just mentioned. If your camera does not have live view, by the way, do check your images on your LCD before moving on. If something looks out of place, fix it. Number five, take control of your exposure. There is a global conspiracy between the camera manufacturers and the display manufacturers that is designed to make us mediocre if we aren't careful. The problem starts with cameras being designed to automatically set exposure in a very safe way. If you don't help your camera in any way, the image will be recorded with all of the information in the middle of the histogram, which means that it is actually quite dark. The problem isn't always obvious because straight out of the factory, our computer displays are usually set to be very, very bright sometimes set to around 80% or even 100% brightness. Then, when we look at the dark photos from our cameras that are shooting an average safe exposure, they look great because the display is brightening them up so much. You might think that this is fine because all, it all sorts itself out, but there are two main reasons why you should not be satisfied with this situation. The first reason is because the printer manufacturers aren't in on the conspiracy. If you shoot a dark image and think it's okay because your display is too bright, when you print it, it will be way too dark. This is one of the biggest complaints that I hear from people that start to print their images for the first time, and it also affects people who send their images to third-party printers to be printed. Although most of the time the third-party printers will brighten up images before printing, again helping to keep the conspiracy a secret. If you never print your images, you may well think that you're off the hook, but that may not be the case. The other issue with trusting the camera's meter is that it introduces unnecessary noise to your photographs. The lighter your photographs are, the less noisy they will be. Even if you decide to darken down the image again on your computer to regain a certain mood, for example, you will record better quality images by exposing them so that the information is almost touching the right side of the histogram. This might be a little bit difficult to understand, but the histogram basically maps out the data being recorded in our image from the darkest to the lightest information. The darkest image data is on the far left and the brightest image data is on the far right. The way images are recorded means that there are higher signal to noise ratios in the brighter parts of our images and noise increases in the darker areas. If your image is recorded as the camera would recommend with all of the data in the middle of the histogram you will see more noise across the image and your shadows will be very noisy indeed and in fact may be so dark that there is no information recorded in the shadows at all. 
By increasing your exposure until the brightest part of your scene is just about touching the right side of the histogram, you will have much cleaner image data, and quite often your shadow areas will not be very noisy either, because you've moved them away from the far left of the histogram, where all of the nasty noise lives. Even if your shadow area does end up on the far left side, there's a good chance that it won't be totally black, and although it may still be a little bit noisy, there's going to be enough texture and detail that it doesn't become much of a problem. There are times, of course, when an almost totally black background is quite effective and therefore desirable, as I found with this image that I'm showing you now, with the histogram embedded for reference. To increase your exposure, you can use exposure compensation and keep increasing the exposure until your image data is close to the right side of the histogram. But then as you reframe or your subjects move, the amount of exposure compensation required can fluctuate and you might start to overexpose images if you don't stay on top of this. Depending on where you are in your photography, this can be a very daunting prospect, but to really control and learn to understand your exposure, I urge you to try to shoot in manual mode. It sounds like more work to set your exposure yourself, but it actually frees you up from needing to constantly adjust exposure compensation, especially when working in similar lighting conditions. To start with, you might try finding your exposure in aperture priority or shutter priority modes, then memorize the settings and switch to manual, then dial in those settings. Note though that even if you go straight to manual mode, you are not flying blind. The exposure meter still works and you can see where the camera thinks the exposure should be in the viewfinder, so you use this as a guide. As you frame up your scene, start to adjust your exposure. Take a guess at where it should be. If there is a lot of white in your scene, for example, you may need to adjust so that the exposure meter shows exposure at plus two stops. Or if, say, there's half of your scene that's very light colored and half that's very dark, you may need to have the carrot on the exposure meter at zero. Once you've adjusted your exposure, shoot a test frame and check that, or check your exposure in live view before shooting, and then do any fine-tuning necessary before you start shooting for real. Once set up though, you may find that you don't have to change your exposure again until you move to a new location. Sure, you do have to stay on top of manual exposure, and for some types of photography it can be too much to deal with, but as you become good at adjusting your exposure, it's pretty much always easier than using exposure compensation and you can keep your image data over to the right side of the histogram much more easily. This results in you creating beautiful bright images with much less or even no noise at all. To close the loop on the conspiracy theory though, note that you now have to darken your display down so that you see your images as they really are now. Because your images are now much brighter, they'll look normal when your display is darker. If you calibrate your display, 
you can often have the software help you to set the brightness to the necessary level for viewing in your ambient lighting conditions. You might find your display being set as low as 10 to 30% of its full brightness. Because you are now shooting bright images though, and viewing them at the correct brightness, an added benefit is that they will now come out of your printer looking beautifully bright, as you expected them to be, and that's a nice added bonus. Number 6. Use the RGB histogram. The histogram is one of the most useful tools on our cameras, but its usefulness is cut in half by the manufacturers, setting them to brightness display by default. If you are using a brightness histogram, which is just a white graph on a black background or something similar, you have no idea how each individual color channel is being recorded. Keeping in mind that most cameras record images in RGB color, the brightness histogram is simply an average of the three colors, red, green and blue. Using a scale of 1 to 10 to explain this, imagine that you have a field of red flowers that you want to expose nice and brightly at 10, which represents the right side of the histogram, but there is very little green or blue in the scene. Let's say that there's just one part green and one part blue to the 10 parts red. In total, this is 12, and this is divided by 3, red, green and blue, to get the average brightness of the three colours. So the brightness histogram of our field of red flowers would show most of the information in the lowest quarter of the histogram, four. So, you know, 12 divided by three, four. So the, the lowest quarter, despite the red actually being very close to the right side. You can see this at work in the photograph that I've attached here. This is actually a photograph of the back of my camera while framing up another photograph on my computer screen. So there's some weirdness going on in the photo, which you'll need to ignore. But you can clearly see that the brightness histogram would have us believe that the scene is much darker than it really is because it's an average of red, green and blue channels. If you have taken control of your exposure and perhaps exposing to the right, as we mentioned in the last point, this will obviously cause problems because you can't actually tell how bright each individual color in your scene is. To avoid this, select the RGB histogram on your camera. This will show you each color channel separately so that you don't inadvertently overexpose any individual colors. Unfortunately, most cameras are not only fooling us, they're actually fooling themselves by setting their average exposure based on the total brightness of the scene, rather than looking at individual color data, which is why you can sometimes end up with blotchy colors in scenes like the one that we've just looked at, where one color is prominent over others. The camera basically overexposes the prominent colour to give us an average brightness image. Another great reason for using the RGB histogram and taking control of your exposure. Number 7. Constantly question yourself. In Craft and Vision's Photograph magazine, issue 5, I published an article called The Mental Checklist. In this, I 
discussed how in the early years of doing this podcast, I started to ask myself questions constantly as I worked in the field. I would find myself starting to explain the steps that I was going through towards making my photographs, as though I was explaining it to you, the podcast listener or reader, in a future episode. The cool thing is that the very act of questioning each step in my process led me to identify mistakes before I made them. It didn't take me long to realize that this was actually helping me to improve my photography. The even cooler thing is that you don't actually have to be making a podcast to do this yourself. Just ask yourself questions as you work. As you approach a scene, ask yourself where you should stand or set up your tripod. Do you need to photograph the wide scene first, or are the details what are really capturing your attention? If so, reach for your longer lens. Do you want a fast shutter speed or a slow one? If slow is better, do you need to fit an ND filter? Will a polarizer filter help you to reduce reflections or intensify color saturation? You might ask yourself if this is the right time to even be shooting that scene or subject. Will it help to just be patient and wait for the light to improve? Or would it be better to come back at a different time of day? Is there a soda can in the scene that you can remove to save yourself from removing it later in post? Once you've made your exposure, check the image and ask more questions. Did you get the background right? Is there a post sticking out of your subject's head? How's the exposure? Rinse and repeat. The more you shoot, the more questions you'll ask yourself. But as you become more experienced, many of the habits that you form will become automatic and fade into the background. There should never come a point, though, when you stop asking questions. Keep asking yourself why you're doing this or why aren't you doing that. What if you do something totally different entirely? This is the key to refining and improving your processes and ultimately to improving your photographs. Number eight, be patient. My company motto is let's not rush to arrive. It's all about the journey. This is in some ways a play on words as a large part of my business is based on our tours and workshops. When we literally are enjoying each step of a journey, often in some of the most scenically beautiful locations on the planet. The other part of this though, is that people seem to be very impatient these days. The internet culture of having everything at our fingertips is making people impatient. Everyone wants to quote unquote arrive, to make it big or to become a great photographer but many people are looking for shortcuts. Some incredibly talented people find them and more power to them, but for the vast majority of us, the only way to get good at something is to do it year in, year out, until we really make it our own. And then we have to keep doing it to stay on top of our game and to hopefully continue to improve. Another part of this, of course, is having patience in the field. Sometimes we arrive at a place, especially where nature and wildlife is concerned, and we don't get our dream shot straight away. In fact, if your dream shot is ambitious, the chances are that you won't get the dream shot on your first visit 
or your second, or maybe for year, many years. I'd been traveling to Hokkaido to photograph the red crown cranes for eight years before I was able to bag what I considered my dream shot. It was a beautiful moment, and I still love the photograph today. I've embedded it in the podcast right now if you want to take a look. But guess what? I'm now looking to shoot something better. Each year I travel there with my Japan Winter Wildlife Tour participants, but in all honesty, I'd go if I wasn't even doing the tours. I'd go each year anyway. The locations we visit are magical. I don't call them the Winter Wonderland Tours for nothing. I'm not saying though that you should not try to get your dream shot every time you pick up the camera. Within the bounds of a single shoot, just be patient. Giving yourself a chance to get some great shots is still vitally important. It doesn't matter whether you are close to home or on the other side of the planet. If you've invested time in getting to a location to make photos, give yourself a chance to make the best that you can. Number nine, don't over-research, learn how to solve problems yourself. The internet may be making people impatient, but it can of course be an amazing tool that I believe we're very fortunate to have at our fingertips. We live in an amazing age, but I'm starting to see more and more information junkies paralysed by information overload. Of course, it's perfectly okay to read up on things that you're interested in, Assimilate as much as you can, as much as time allows. And if you simply like reading, maybe the internet has replaced books or magazines to a degree. That's fine. But please don't be fooled into thinking that rampantly reading every single photography-related article that you can find is going to make you a great photographer. It helps, of course. Learn what you can. But I'm coming across more and more people that have read so much about the technical side of photography that they start to get confused. There's so much information swimming around in their heads that when it really comes to using some of that information, they can't figure out which techniques to use. Overthinking a situation can be as paralyzing as not having a clue as to what you need to do in the first place. It's much better to develop problem-solving skills to overcome hurdles or figure out problems by ourselves. You'll draw from all of the information that you've already made your own, but your work will be much more original and you'll be much more likely to think your way around the next problem if you practice thinking for yourself instead of spending all of your time online trying to assimilate the entire accumulated knowledge of the internet. This probably sounds contradictory coming from someone that's writing on a blog that I still would like you to visit and read, or listen to the podcast, but I would really like to think that you will value what I have to say enough to keep me on your reading list. I'm not saying that you should stop reading blogs and web pages altogether, but I do urge you to ask yourself if you're spending so much time online that you are reducing the amount of time you could be out in the field with your camera, for example. If the answer is yes, then it's probably time to cut back a little. One other part of researching that I think should be avoided more is looking at too many photos of locations that you intend to visit before you actually go. Looking at photos is a great way to find locations that you'd like to visit, but once you have that location on your list, don't go too crazy looking at more work from there. 
If you turn up at a location with too many images implanted in your head, you'll spend your whole time looking for those images and stop being open to your own creativity. You have to give your own photography room to breathe, and there's no room for that if your head is full of other people's images. Turn up knowing what a location has to offer, and research the best time of day or time of year to be there, but then let your own creativity take over and see if you can't make something better than has already been made there and not just come home with your copy of someone else's photograph. Number 10. Don't be a fair weather photographer. One of the things that I feel places unnecessary restrictions and even holds back many photographers is the belief that it needs to be a sunny day before you can make any good photographs. This could not be further from the truth. I cringe whenever I hear from someone returning from a trip complaining that it rained the entire time. Rain can be a pain to work with. You need to ensure that you not only have weatherproof gear or protection to keep your gear working in the rain, but you also need to ensure that you wear the right clothing to keep yourself safe and dry when the weather turns foul. But a sky full of rain or storm clouds can provide you with much better photographs than a blue sky, even if you have some nice fluffy clouds to break it up. Colours are more saturated when wet. This isn't necessarily a pun either. There's a reason why we call rich, deep colours saturated. The contrast in our scene is often lower too when it's overcast or raining, so we don't have to compensate for a bright sky by underexposing foliage, for example. So, the next time you have some free time and you're hoping for a nice sunny day, think again. You might be passing up an opportunity to shoot some beautiful dramatic images if you decide to curl up with your iPad instead of going outside when the forecast is for overcast, rain or snow. Okay, that's it for today. As I said in the introduction, this is not an exhaustive list. There's lots of other stuff that I could have included here, but these are the things that I've been thinking about recently and I hope that it is of some use to you. Thanks very much for listening today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share a link with your friends. And if you don't already, please subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast program to ensure an interrupted delivery. You can find me on Google+, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, etc. And links to everything that I'm up to are at martinbaileyphotography.com. So do drop by and take a look. I'll be back next week with another episode. But in the meantime, you take care and have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye.